Um, it's, it's my great pleasure to introduce the lecturer this morning. Um, Stephen Richard Berger graduated from Princeton University in 1976, magna cum laude, with a BA in English Literature. He received a JD from the University of Virginia Law School in 1979. After practicing law for five years, Mr. Berger graduated from the Amos Tuck Graduate School of Business Administration in Dartmouth College in 1987 as a Tuck Scholar. After working three years at Cambridge Associates as a managing director in the area of marketable alternative assets, Mr. Berger formed Adamus Partners in 2000 with two former colleagues from Cambridge Associates. Adamus Partners is an absolute rate return fund of funds manager, manager that operated from January 2001 through the end of 2022. At its peak, the firm managed approximately $2 billion of capital. Mr. Berger served two terms as a director of the Princeton University Investment Company and was a prior member of the University of Virginia Investment Management Company Board of Directors. He also served two terms as a member of the Dartmouth College Investment Committee. Mr. Berger was also a member of the Care Group Board of Managers Investment Committee and was the chairman of the board of the Father Flanagan's Trust Fund for Boys and Girls Town. He is currently a board member of the Mises Institute. Mr. Berger will speak to us today on a very important topic, an Austrian analysis of COVID vaccines. Please welcome Mr. Berger. Thank you, uh, Dr. Salerno, for that uh, very kind and generous introduction. I'm honored to be here at uh, Mises University, one of the few universities, Princeton, UVA, and Dartmouth aren't in that group. Uh, it's one of the few universities in the country where free thought, debate, dissent, and critical thinking are not only allowed, but they're actively encouraged. Uh, so I'm honored to be here. Most of my talks uh, in my long career, as you can probably gather from Dr. Salerno's introduction, dealt with uh, investment topics and investment matters. In fact, I've presented twice to Mises University, and both of those talks I gave here touched on investment issues. As part of giving an investment presentation, we were often required, or always required, and to, to provide uh, various disclaimers about risk and performance. And that list of disclaimers each year tended to increase in length with the increasing reach of the SEC into the affairs of private investment managers. So in this, so even though this talk today is, has nothing to do with investment issues, I would still like to provide a disclaimer before I start my formal presentation. So here, here's my disclaimer. I have never treated a COVID patient. I, as it will probably readily appear to you, I have fairly limited medical and scientific knowledge. Now that you know how much I have in common with Dr. Tony Fauci, I, <laughs> I hope you will still give my remarks uh, uh, s some fair hearing. Okay, let's turn to the uh, famous uh, Dr. Fauci, who in, is a, in, as part of his heated response to getting grilled by Senator Rand Paul about the origins of the COVID, uh, COVID virus had this to say. 
You said it's very dangerous. A lot of what you're seeing is attacks on me, quite frankly, are attacks on science. Can anyone imagine a more unscientific, anti-scientific uh, irrigation of authority and expertise by, by anyone? Uh, science is all about debate, dis dissent, and iterative give and take of theory, data, in the face of contradictory or confirmatory evidence. Science is never about assumption of expertise or consensus. And here was Fauci basically saying the exact opposite. This, this is a pretty good depiction of him. <laughs> Fauci is the new, uh, what, what was that? Louis XIV, the new Louis, Louis XIV, uh, the science is moi. Uh, <clears throat> here's a better uh, illustration of what uh, I think of Fauci, and this, I think, slide actually appeared on Lou Rockwell's uh, uh, website, so I'll blame this one on Lou. Uh, <laughs> here's, here's, here's Dr. Fauci with uh, the egg on your face mask. And you'll notice on this picture that it's only uh, uh, two eggs sunny side up, and given how Fauci uh, flip-flopped on masks, first saying they were totally useless, a few weeks later saying everyone needed a mask, about a month later saying if one mask is good, two must be better. I wish there were a way to redo this chart so that we could have a double egg mask on Fauci's face instead of two eggs sunny side up. So my role, my role model, instead of uh, someone who poses as, uh, as being brilliant, but whose pronouncements over time appear to be more clownish, is actually uh, a clown or a comic whose insights were actually brilliant. So on this slide, I have the redoubtable uh, uh, Groucho Marx uh, way before your time and pretty much before my time. But Groucho had this uh, uncanny statement to make about politics. He said, politics is the art of looking for trouble, finding it everywhere, diagnosing it incorrectly and applying the wrong remedies. <laughs> I think his insight still holds up. So let's look at the, what would Groucho Marx say about the public health uh, uh, batting record uh, during the COVID pandemic? I, I think even Groucho would be amazed, as I will show on this slide and the next. I think the public health uh, complex uh, had virtually a perfect batting average of incompetence during the uh, COVID, uh, COVID crisis, so-called COVID crisis. Uh, amazingly, I think, uh, and time has borne out, that they, they got about everything wrong during the pandemic. Uh, and I'll just touch on a few of those. First of all, uh, in, contrary to kind of decades of uh, knowledge about how to deal with uh, pandemics, the public health authorities uh, locked down the healthy, quarantined the healthy, closed the schools. And this, uh, they did this in defiance of kind of decades of knowledge about pandemic control. And also in, in kind of defiance of evidence that actually was known at the very beginning of uh, the COVID crisis, certainly as early as March of 2020, that COVID, and I don't want to minimize the, the risk of COVID, but COVID's dire consequences really were only a threat 
to a small subset of the population, and that turned out to be, somewhat fortunately, uh, people that were extremely elderly and frail, many of whom had multiple comorbidities, often were beyond normal life expectancy, and the, the rest of the population, including working age population, students, young kids, virtually any healthy adult under the age of 70 uh, uh, really wasn't terribly threatened by COVID. I, I don't want to minimize uh, the fact that there, of course, were always individuals that tragically died from COVID in those age, gr age groups as well as from other illnesses. But by and large, COVID uh, was only a true risk for the extremely uh, frail and elderly. So they completely ignored those risk uh, stratifications of COVID. Let's look at another one, masking. That was also uh, in defiance of uh, uh, decades of knowledge and scientific studies about the efficacy of masking. And I think it quickly became apparent, uh, even if you didn't know the science, that the masking rules kind of made no logical sense. I mean, just let, let's just look at a couple of them to point this out. The, the restaurant guidelines, to me, seem pretty absurd on their face. You had to wear a mask at the hostess table and when we, you went to the restroom, or if you were sitting at the bar in a restaurant, but if you were at a crowded table, it was fine to take off your mask. So I guess, I guess the virus actually uh, kind of surprised me. I guess it had kind of mental intent. It kind of knew where people were congregated in a restaurant, and if you were sitting at your table, the virus knew that that was fine, so it wouldn't go near the table, but if you were at the hostess, counter or in the restroom, the virus kind of miraculously avoided the tables but went into those areas. And so that, that just made no sense. Uh, another one, they, uh, everyone, it, it, it's always been the case that this asymptomatic spread of viruses is a very rare event. The WHO, uh, a chief scientist at the WHO actually uh, enunciated that very early in the pandemic. But two or three days later, that lead scientist was kind of forced to backpedal because once you kind of let the genie out of the worm, that asymptomatic spread uh, was not really something to be that concerned about. All of the other measures uh, uh, were pretty unsupportable. I mean, you couldn't really justify, uh, you, you could only try to justify lockdowns if you considered everyone a potential vector of transmission and disease, even if they had no symptoms. The one that really galls me and still does to this day is the bottom one on this page, uh, denial of early treatment and the use of repurposed drugs. Amazingly, let's, let's just think about it. Our hospital and medical system is supposed to be the envy of the world. We've come up with lots of Nobel Prize winning drugs including drugs that had been used in the past to treat coronaviruses or other respiratory uh, viral and bacterial infections. But all of a sudden during COVID, nothing worked. We were told that there are no ways to treat COVID, that you basically have to lock yourself up in your room and just wait for the miracle vaccine to emerge. It just, just did not make any sense that there was no way to treat this.
few more on this page. Natural immunity was ignored by the public health uh, complex virtually from the very beginning, and that, that had never been the case. Even if you replay past videos from Tony Fauci about the flu and measles and other uh, uh, types of infectious diseases, he was on record in prior videos as saying natural immunity is always the most effective uh, preventative of against getting disease and the best way to get to herd immunity. But during COVID, natural immunity was kind of ignored. And moreover, vaccinated immunity was seen as uh, much broader than natural immunity, which again made no logical sense. And then we get to the vaccines, which will be the topic, main topic of my talk. We were told the vaccines were safe and effective. We're still told that to this day. We were told ad nauseum from the beginning that the vaccine stopped transmission and infection, that you just have to get it once and then you're done. That the vaccine, the only side effect will be a little soreness at the injection site. Your arm will be sore for a day or two, but not to worry. The injection rapidly degrades and leaves your body right away. And so all, all you'll have is, you know, a little sore, sore arm. Has anyone ever seen Seinfeld episodes? Do, do, do people remember the George Costanza do the opposite episode? Have a raise, raise of hands here. Well, I, I won't. I, I wish I could replay the video here, but since you all know it, I, I started to con conclude after time that uh, the George Costanza response uh, would have been the appropriate one to adopt in relation to what the public health. Uh, agencies were saying, let's, let's just do the opposite of everything they're recommending. Uh, and, and on that point, you would think that public health uh, agencies would be concerned about public health. And it was known very early on that uh, two of the highest risk factors for uh, adverse uh, reactions to the COVID virus two of the most predictive risk factors were vitamin D deficiency and obesity. And so what does the CDC and FDA and NIH and their alphabet uh, agencies recommend? They recommend that instead of going outdoors and getting sunlight and exercising and walking and getting fresh air, that you shut yourself in your room uh, totally isolated with CNN on, eating junk food, and uh, uh, everything that you, you couldn't think of anything possibly worse to uh, degrade your immune system than to follow kind of their recommendations. So let's look at the vaccines. And again, I'm not giving uh, medical advice in this. My, my points go way beyond uh, what you think of the vaccines or any other medicines. I, I really, uh, my, my points have nothing to do with that really. Okay, the COVID vaccines teams, I, I think it quickly emerged that there were two teams during this whole uh, past three years on uh, the vaccines. I'll call one team authority and you all probably are very familiar with the members of this team. CDC, FDA, FDA NIH, uh, HHS, and uh, Department of Defense actually, uh, to my surprise, and it came out later, was actually the centerpiece of the teams. This was actually a, a, a military defense uh, 
operation from the very beginning. If you look at all the org charts, uh, they were at the top of the pyramid uh, making all of these decisions about uh, the pandemic response. Uh, the next one's really a typo. I put President Biden. It's actually Presidents Biden and Trump. They were both part of uh, team authority. So I'll correct that next time I make this talk. Big Pharma, mainstream ma media, uh, sadly, colleges and universities, medical associations, various nonprofits, and most state governors and assorted world tyrants, including two of my favorites, Justin Trudeau and Jacinda Ardern, uh, who I think probably get uh, first, first prize in most tyrannical edicts, which I guess is how Ardern now is on the faculty at Harvard. Team Descent. You may not know much about this team because uh, Team Authority did everything they could to censor and keep this team out of the news. Team Descent included uh, esteemed, not fringe epide epidemiologists, which is what uh, Fauci and Collins called them, but included esteemed epidemiologists from Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford who actually very early on in 2020 authored the Great Barrington Declaration, which came up with an alternative approach to how to deal with uh, this pandemic or any pandemic, which was really a strategy of focused protection where you kind of worry about and take care of the, the sick and the ill, but you leave the healthy to go about their normal lives. It also included a number of uh, independent and brave physicians in the field. I name a few here, Dr. Peter McCullough, Harvey Risch at Yale, Dr. Zelenko, unfortunately deceased, uh, Drs. Corey and Merrick, Fareed and Tyson, uh, Dr. Malhotra, who's actually one of my favorites. He's a uh, famous cardiologist based in the United Kingdom who initially uh, was a proponent on BBC TV on uh, why the vaccines were essential medical measure that people needed to get. And he had his red pill moment about a year later when his father, also a cardiologist, unfortunately deceased uh, uh, instantaneously from cardiac arrest. And Malhotra, uh, a famous cardiologist, basically concluded that the only explanation for his sudden death had to be an adverse reaction to the vaccine. And so that caused him to dig deep into the original Pfizer and Moderna trials. And he actually came full circle to concluding that the uh, vaccines had uh, very little benefit and a lot of uh, risk and uh, issues and that they should actually be suspended or pulled from the market pending further investigation. So he, he actually came full circle and put his career on the line. Others on this team, uh, RFK Jr. and the so-called disinformation uh, dozen, uh, which were 12 figures from various walks of life uh, uh, who were cited as by the government as spreading disinformation, whatever that means. Uh, I guess I'm a disinformation spreader just giving this talk today, but I'm not on the dozen. That's kind of my lifetime goal is to get on that list. Uh, uh, Medical ethicists like Dr. Arian, Aaron Cariotti, who was actually a professor of uh, ethics in the UCAL Irvine medical system and uh, this ethical 
medical professor was actually fired for refusing to take the uh, COVID vaccine and ended up in a lawsuit against the university and is actually part of several lawsuits against the U.S. government. Various censored journalists, the vaccine injured organizations, and then a few organizations that are no pro uh, nonprofits, including the No College Mandate organization, which has fought laboriously to uh, get rid of COVID mandates uh, at all of the uh, colleges and universities. Okay, here's what, so what, what do these two teams have to say? Here's COVID team authorities. I'm just kind of cherry picking some of their uh, comments from the very beginning. You're not going to get COVID if you get these, if you got these vaccinations. We are in a pandemic of the unvaccinated, said Joe Biden, who went on to get COVID two or three times after making this statement. Uh, the vaccines are safe and effective, said Anthony Fauci. I believe he also said the vaccines are a dead end for the virus. You get this vaccine, the virus stops with you said Anthony Fauci, who went on to get COVID multiple times after making this statement. Uh, our data from the CDC today suggests that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, do not get sick, and it's not just in the clinical trials, but it's also in real-world data, said Rochelle Walensky, head of the CDC at the time, who also went on to get COVID multiple times and who apparently never read the... Uh, uh, original clinical trials of Pfizer and Moderna and the other vaccine manufacturers because in those trials they were quite explicit that they did not test for the vaccine's ability to stop transmission and infection. They only tested for symptomatic COVID basically whether it would keep you from getting sniffles but uh, they did not test for transmission or infection. Uh, Here's another two of my favorites. God did, God did answer our prayers. He made the smartest men and women, the scientists, the doctors, the researchers. He made them come up with a vaccine that is from God to us, said New York Governor Kathy Hochul. Not to be outdone, Dr. Ashish uh, Jha, the Biden White House COVID coordinator, and now has gone back to be being dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University, said, I really think this is why God gave us two arms, one for the flu shot and the other for the COVID shot. <laughs> so Team Authority has quite a lineup. They have uh, science, state, and God on their side. How, 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 how can I possibly uh, argue against that? So I'll, I'll try. And again, I'm not it may appear that I'm taking sides, but that's not the point of my talk. I'm going to have another way of resolving this debate uh, besides listening to an amateur uh, medical person like me. Hmm, safe, free, and effective, and necessary. For, for any medical device, drug, vaccine, those are the questions one always has to ask. Is this uh, measure safe? Uh, what does it cost? Is it effective? Is it is it necessary? Do I really need to take this drug, use this medical device, take this vaccine? My guiding spirit on this question is uh, the famous H.L. Mencken, who said, the most dangerous man to any government is the man who is able to think things out for himself without regard to the prevailing superstitions and taboos. Almost inevitably, he comes to the conclusion 
that the government he lives under is dishonest, insane, and intolerable. By the way, I think Mencken was uh, Murray Rothbard's, one, one of his favorite uh, writers and thinkers. So I'm just going to look at the safety ang angle and kind of give a little bit of countervailing evidence that team dissent would put out there versus team authority. I could do make the same arguments on the cost of the vaccines, their necessity, and efficacy, uh, which the efficacy, if it existed at all, proved to be very fleeting and short-lived. So let's just look at the safety. Team authority says that uh, adverse events from the COVID vaccine are exceedingly rare. One in a million is usually their metric. So given that uh, if it's kind of a one in a million risk, given that we, I think, injected about 250 million people in the U.S. or something along those lines, give or take, uh, that means we should have had, you know, just a few hundred adverse uh, events. <coughs> Instead, on the VAERS reporting system, which is a public health reporting system, it stands for Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, since the vaccines were rolled out at the start of, uh, end of 2020, start of 2021, and through early this summer, this chart's updated every week, but I made this presentation about a, these slides about a month ago. We had one and a half million uh, adverse events filed. Uh, it sounds like a little more than 150. We had 35,000 deaths uh, reported at that time, over 200,000 hospitalizations, one that may be near and dear to your heart, so to speak. Uh, uh, myocarditis, periocarditis, 27,000 events, and a lot of those events have uh, occurred particularly among uh, college and teenage males disproportionately. Uh, miscarriages, permanent disability, on and on. What I should point out about the VAERS system, which you may not know, uh, most of these reports are filed by uh, doctors and physicians. Probably 80% of the reports are filed by medical personnel. The other thing you should know, and the government admits this, there's serious underreporting of these events. Lot, lots of reasons to explain why the underreporting is so rampant, but estimates of the underreporting range anywhere from uh, 10 to 100 time underreporting factor. Many of the uh, scientists uh, whose work I respect have settled on a number between 25 to 30 times is probably the most accurate underreporting factor. So if you take all of these events and multiply it by 25 or 30 to get a picture of what the real story is like, uh, that adds up to a pretty large number. I don't have my calculator with me, but I think you all can do the math very easily. Here's another day, uh, another way of looking at it. This, again, is pulled right off the VAERS report uh, maintained by the CDC, so I'm not making these numbers up. The top graph, if you can see it okay, looks at uh, reports of death. We saw on the previous slide those cumulative deaths so far were about 35,000, and here's Here's how that looks historically. If you look all the way back to 1990, which is about when the, this database uh, came into existence, you can pretty quickly tell that those red bars in 21, 22, and 23 to date 
are quite a bit larger than uh, all of the others, which, which are just blips. So what this basically means is that cumulatively, uh, the, the cumulative total of deaths reported from all vaccines combined, all kinds of vaccines, going all the way back to 1990, that cumulative number is far shy of the number reported already just for the COVID uh, vaccine. So I, I think to categorically repeat ad nauseum that these vaccine rare events are one in a million seems a little bit off to me, a little bit of cognitive dissonance. Another chart, uh, this again is another database the CDC uh, maintained, uh, uh, the vSafe system. This was kind of a cell phone app and there were around 10 million users that submitted data to this app and this is kind of a busy chart, but as you can see just from that app, uh, almost 8% of those uh, reporting through their cell phone and it was a very easy thing to upload needed medical care, uh, close to a third uh, missed school work or were unable to perform normal daily activities after receiving the shots. I mean, th these are alarming numbers. This is not just a little muscle ache in your arm. This is kind of, uh, it should be a safety signal. Let me leave it at that. Okay, so how do we, how do we resolve this debate? Uh, as I said before, I'm kind of an amateur on the subject, so you really shouldn't uh, kind of go with my advice here. And I'm not even sure, uh, I, I hate the phrase, trust the experts. Uh, so like, what, what experts do we listen to? Do we listen to team authority? Do we listen to team dissent? Why should we listen to anyone? Can't we do our independent uh, knowledge and consultation with our own medical professional and do our own reading to kind of come to uh, an informed understanding of what the risk and benefits of any medical measure are. I would argue that there's an alternative way to resolve this debate and you've been kind of learning about it uh, all week and prior to Mises University and that way to do so is the uh, application of the principles of Austrian economics. Uh, if we had true free and unfettered uh, markets instead of uh, coercively, coercive crony capitalistic markets kind of enforced by the long arm of the regulatory state, I would argue that we quickly would have found out during COVID what the most effective uh, medical measures were to, to treat it. So here are the key tenets uh, that you've been learning all week uh, I think, and we'll continue to learn about Austrian economics, and I'll bring them to light on the COVID vaccine issue in just a second. Uh, those tenets are, as Rothbard stated in many of his uh, works, especially Man, Economy, and State, and Power and Market, monopoly power is not kind of an uh, outgrowth of free natural markets. It's rather a state construct where legal protection is provided to favored corporations and competitors are excluded from entering that business. So that, that and the result of monopoly power is that high, uh, high price and low quality are inevitable. Once you grant someone monopoly power legally, they have uh, very little incentive to improve their product to 
evaluate the safety of their product and to respond to changing consumer preferences. Their market is subsidized and locked in and competitors are excluded. Secondly, the free market uh, process can be distinguished from the bureaucratic uh, centralized planning process under, in the free market process with uh, private property and free exchange. We get price feedback. We get market feedback to improve quality and their lower prices versus regulatory inertia. Importantly, we get blowback from uh, losses in bankruptcy and harm to reputation. Uh, by contrast, if there's regulatory failure, as I tended to point out, I think existed in droves during the COVID crisis, instead of uh, blowback losses, you get uh, uh, blowback gains or upward failure. You either get uh, more people and more money added to your staff and you have the ability to kind of wield your power and largesse through the healthcare system to kind of have acolytes at your, dispense, uh, at your dispense. The market process is one of a continuous process of innovation and discovery uh, driven by competition or the threat of competition. Mixed systems, whether you call it corporatism, fascism, or the kind word that's used now, the public-private partnership model, uh, uh, beget more intervention, regulatory capture, and rigidity. And finally, this Austrian economic uh, market structure depends upon a libertarian law order to work properly. That's a law order that has pretty limited objectives. It's mainly just to protect private property exchanges from force and fraud. Okay, let's look at the vaccine market to see if it had any of these features. This is just a quick historic uh, detour. The vaccine market, uh, which I didn't really know until I kind of went down this rabbit hole pretty deeply, uh, is one in which market forces were completely eliminated. This slide, which was presented by Aaron Siri, a leading uh, attorney in the vaccine field, uh, presentation he made to the Arizona State Senate just a month or so ago, uh, excerpts uh, the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act of 86. This was passed in the, during the Reagan administration uh, as a result of extensive lobbying by the pharmaceutical companies who, who basically were saying to Reagan in Congress, our, our vaccines are unavoidably unsafe. Uh, for every dollar of revenue, we have $20 of downstream liability due to side effects, and we're just not going to be able to uh, produce these vaccines and unless we get a liability shield. So Congress passed the Vaccine Act of 86, which uh, granted uh, complete legal immunity to the vaccine manufacturers. No other product, no other consumer product, your automobile or any other product has this level of uh, uh, legal protection. So what happened? Uh, guaranteed market plus no liability in 86, right at the time, right before the law was passed, the, there were only a handful of vaccines on the childhood vaccine, vaccine schedule. And many of these ended up being mandated by the states and school boards once they got on the childhood vaccine schedule. And, uh, I probably got most of these vaccines, or maybe a 
not quite this many because uh, they, a few were added over time. But there were 18 on this schedule in 86. This law is passed, and lo and behold, where are we now? Uh, 23, we're up to 72 mandated vaccines. E each one's a gold mine. These are billion dollar plus products, and that uh, gravy train goes to lots of lots of players, the pharma companies, the doctors prescribing the vaccines. They get all kinds of government pay payments. But as you can see, there is a huge, humongous growth in this market, all because of these artificial uh, protections. COVID had another, the COVID vaccines had another level of protection that went beyond this. To get into legal details of this, uh, it's on the bottom of this slide. This was a 2005 uh, PREP Act, uh, the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act. I, I love these acronyms. Uh, uh, I'd, I'd like to meet the person that comes up with the names of these legislation. Like, who came up with the Inflation Protection Act, which kind of authorized trillions of dollars of spending to fuel more inflation? It's, it's pretty, pretty ingenious, I think. Uh, Orwell's Ministry of Truth could not have done better. Uh, but the, the PREP Act went one further. It was even extra layers of uh, legal protection to the vaccine manufacturers and anyone in the chain of distributing or administering vaccines. And one of the uh, uh, amazing quirks of this uh, legislation is that under the PREP Act, the only way you could get an emergency use use authorization, getting a UA, e, EUA is like the holy grail. The government buys up your product, it advertises it, it propagandizes it for it, it, administers it. But the only way you were allowed to be issued a EUA was it, it depended on this quirk in the language. There could not at the time be any other uh, uh, treatment or remedy that was safe and or effective that could be an alternative to the product that you were seeking e e EUA for. So if there were any other kind of medicine or drug that could treat COVID effectively, uh, the issuance of a vaccine EUA would have been dead on arrival and there, there's no way they would have been issued. So once you understand that quirk in the law, about the legal regulatory underpinnings of the uh, vaccine cartel, everything, everything makes, or most everything makes sense after that. It all falls into place. This is why there was a war on repurposed uh, drugs or using any alternative remedies to treat COVID because if you conceded that they existed, you couldn't get the EUA for the vaccine and billions of dollars of revenue would have been out the window. Uh, all of this, the propaganda, the censorship, the coercion, the mandates, they, they all make sense once you understand uh, the mechanics of the issuance of the EUA. So I would argue that the COVID vaccine cartel, which was called Operation Warp, Warp Speed, was really Warp Speed. <laughs> uh, I think it was probably the most uh, uh, corrupt, extensive, large-scale monopoly uh, ever. I was talking to Lou about this before we started here, telling him that I, I never really spent much time looking at the pharma, uh, public health, uh, industrial complex. I spent a lot of time 
being in the financial industry, knowing a lot about the uh, uh, kind of the Federal Reserve banking cartel and how that worked. And I obviously had a historical interest in the military-industrial context, being a child of the Vietnam War, kind of knew how that worked. But I, I had no idea how extensive this uh, uh, vaccine cartel was. And you can see some of the numbers on this page. Almost $75 billion in COVID vaccine revenue to Pfizer for the 21-22 period. Uh, little bullet two, uh, uh, NI NIH, NIH shared generously in this uh, money pot $400 million royalty settlement recently with Moderna, largely awarded to the National Institute of Health, but it was also split with Scripps College and uh, Dartmouth College, uh, Dartmouth where I went to business school and uh, Dartmouth, uh, go green is the motto, and uh, I always thought go green had to do with the color of their uniforms, but no, but now it's it's clear go go green had to do with the, the kind of the monetary rewards uh, they received. Billions paid to doctors, insurers, hospitals, media, colleges, and universities. Uh, uh, how can agencies profiting from and promoting the shots? be expected to monitor manufacturing quality and safety issues. They can't. It's illogical to think that uh, someone with that level of financial conflict of interest can give objective advice about the safety and efficacy of a product that they uh, financially gain from. Other parts of the cartel, uh, this is just coming out now, the Twitter files. Uh, many of you heard about that legal case. Any show of hands, has anyone heard of Missouri versus Biden, a 155-page ruling that just came down a few weeks ago by Judge Doty or Dowdy, I'm not sure of the pronunciation. It's like, is it Bilen or Bilen? Uh, you know, I, 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 I don't, don't know the correct pronunciation. I think either will do. But what's more important is he issued a 155-page ruling in behalf of the plaintiff suing uh, the Biden administration and a whole handful of uh, public health and other agencies about their massive censorship efforts on Twitter, Twitter and Facebook, Instagram and YouTube and other social media to suppress any discussion of early treatment uh, medications, to gaslight the vaccine injured, to counter any, uh, any, any statements made that might promote vaccine hesitancy. Uh, Dr. Salerno told me that this uh, presentation will appear on YouTube. I'm, I'm, I'm doubtful of that. <laughs> I, think, I, 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 I think if they just look at the title of this uh, essay, their, they'll, their algorithm will go haywire. I mean, if it, if it is on YouTube for more than 24 hours, I'll be shocked and amazed, but we'll, we'll see. I think there are other ways of getting the word out besides YouTube. But at any rate, in that opinion, uh, uh, Judge Doty, and, and, uh, in his ruling, Missouri versus Biden, said, the present case arguably involves the most massive attack against free speech in U.S. history. I wish we had Tom DiLorenzo uh, here. He's spoken before, but he, uh, I think he, he, would be he would probably agree with that statement, but he would also say 
That's quite amazing. There's pretty stiff competition to say that the, what went on in the COVID era stands out in U.S. history. I mean, you had the Alien and Sedition Acts under John Adams. You had Lincoln uh, jailing opposition editors in the, new, in the North and shouting down uh, newspapers in the North that were trying to argue for uh, uh, peace or a way to kind of explore uh, how, how the two sides could kind of resolve their differences. You had the Wilson era with the uh, jailing of socialists and anti-war protesters. You had the McCarthy era in the 1950s. I mean, th these are some dramatic eras of free speech censorship. And Doty said that uh, what went on the last three years uh, tops those. So that, that's, that's pretty impressive. Okay, what's, what's my alternative? I've complained a lot. Uh, what, what would be my tenets? Uh, again, using insights I've learned over the years from uh, Austrian economics and how that works. My, my alternative is pretty simple, uh, so simple that it has zero chance of happening. Uh, <laughs> it's getting the state out of health care. The tenets of my program and I'm not running for office. I'm about the most apolitical person ever. I, I can't imagine operating in that form. Uh, would be complete medical freedom to prescribe or take uh, any medication. And that, that freedom would include the right to refuse any medication based on informed consent. It would be a complete dismantling of the public health agencies who I think are uh, beyond captured and corrupted and uh, I, I think any, I've seen some of the proposals to reform the agencies. Some may make sense, but I think uh, in short, those, those proposals to me are like reshuffling shares on the deck of the Titanic. Uh, uh, so ab dismantling the public health agencies and a complete repeal of the legal immunity afforded the vaccine manufacturers. I mean, there, there's no way anyone in a libertarian or constitutional law order should have legal immunity from injury they might cause, uh, from fraud they might perpetrate in selling a product. So what, ha what would happen if my platform was adopted? Vaccines would have to compete like any other product with uh, other therapeutics, uh, supplements, nutraceuticals, other mechanisms of protection. If that were the case, uh, we would kind of restore consumer and patient sovereignty. Preferences for uh, a vaccine or any other product would be based on a bottom-up assessment uh, of risk and benefits uh, tied to kind of the need of that particular patient. It would be kind of a selective uh, market like you have for any other product. We're not mandated what, at least not yet, uh, what foods we can eat, although it seems that's coming, uh, but we're not mandated what kind of sneakers we can wear. I mean, why, why should it be different with uh, medication? I can hear the reaction to this uh, decision, this recommendation to open up the market, to kind of free the market, get out of crony capitalism. I can already hear Dr. Malhotra, who I said before I respect uh, and kind of idolized for his moral courage and changing his opinion. He's called big pharma companies pathological liars, uh, criminals, uh, 
he 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 probably would recoil at the suggestion that they uh, be given a, a free market. Uh, but I think he misses an important point. My point is that the only way, and, and I don't disagree that they've acted like uh, beast historically under this crony capitalism uh, model. Af after all, uh, the four main vaccine manufacturers in the United States have paid over $30 billion in civil and criminal file fines over the last decade for all kinds of medications that they've put on the market. So. Uh, they clearly do not have what I would call a, a sterling record. Uh, but my point is that the free market uh, with liability risk attached to it, not waived or immunized, is the only way to effectively uh, discipline companies that, that any other attempt uh, uh, will not be efficacious compared to that. And if it turns out that they are indeed irredeemable, that self-regulation is kind of a pipe dream, why does self-regulation have to be the only uh, way to kind of uh, put discipline on the market? Safety's a good like any other. So if the pharma companies are kind of inherently evil and awful, and I don't really think there should be a reason in theory why that's the case, but let's assume they are, and patients want safe products, there has to be a market that would develop in response to that demand for safety. Uh, Walter Block uh, outlined this in, I think it was volume three of Defending the Undefendables uh, when he had a chapter about the FDA and Tom Woods has talked about it and I think a recent book, he, a pamphlet he came out with uh, on, uh, I forget the exact title, something like uh, why regulation isn't healthy or helpful or something like that. But safety is a private good. Businesses will emerge in response to that. It could be certification businesses. We have rating agencies in other fields. We have consumer reports. Uh, uh, we have industry codes of practices in other industries, and uh, that market will develop. As Professor Bylan Bielan, uh said yesterday, one of the costs of regulation besides the seen and the unseen is the uh, unrealized potential, and it's the same here. Uh, if we made this market completely free, we have no idea what the what kind of unrealized potential to develop safety businesses or other ways of treating infectious diseases could evolve when we have a kind of a captured and controlled market. Uh, we're foregoing the innovation that the market can provide. In addition to these economic benefits, I think there are a lot of uh, ancillary uh, I'm almost out of time, ancillary benefits from uh, opening up the market. Uh, I think mandates would have been pretty much unlikely, if not impossible, in a free market libertarian order. You don't hear about mandates with respect to other products where the markets are relatively free. A lot of the politiza politization and polarization that we saw during COVID would have disappeared if we had kind of a free market with competitive products offered. I mean, you don't go around critiquing family members because they buy 
one type of sneaker versus another, and I think it would have been the same with medicine. It would have been everyone's own business, and you wouldn't have gone around pulling your friends and vilifying them if they took one product over another. Okay, I'd like to quickly wrap up. Why does all of this matter? Uh, the emergency conditions for now were lifted in the middle of May. Most of the universities have probably lifted the vaccine mandates. I, there still are 100 schools that have uh, them in effect, amazingly. Do any of you all have universities that still have the mandates uh, in place where you go? Yeah, so they still exist. It's a minority now. But why does this, why does this all matter in, in the first place? I have a quote from C.S. Lewis that kind of gets at that point, but I'd like to give you my own view of why it matters, and this will probably be the most incendiary part of my presentation. I think it matters because the last three years, in my view, have witnessed the, the most astounding assault not only on bodily autonomy and freedom, but on all of our constitutional and natural uh, rights. Virtually every single bill of rights was shredded during the COVID uh, mandate. So my incendiary comment is that, uh, and this will definitely get me taken off YouTube, uh, is that I think the closest uh, parallel to what went on the last three years uh, is the Nazi era, the early part of the Nazi party in 1928 through early 33, not the latter part when the Gestapo was in existence and when the camps and all the other horrors came into existence, but the early birth of the Nazi party in the late 20s. So you may ask, uh, what are the parallels? How can I make that assertion? Some would say bringing that up makes me an anti-Semite, although I don't see the logical connection. So here are my three ways on how they're similar. Uh, in that period in Nazi history, we had book burning. A lot of them occurred on college campuses. Uh, did we have book burning this time? Not really, but as uh, Biden versus Missouri unearthed, we had uh, massive government orchestrated censorship and deplatforming on social media. Was that not a modern technocratic form of book burning? I posit it that it was, and perhaps more extensive and perhaps more harmful. Two, uh, I would highly recommend a book by Robert Proctor. It was written back in 1988, way before this pandemic, and it was about medicine under the Nazis. In that book, Proctor spent most of his time focusing on that period of 1928 to 32, way before the uh, trials at Nuremberg on the atrocities that actually occurred at the camps. But he spent a lot of time in that book looking at the medical uh, practices going on in that period in the medical community and at the medical schools and major universities. And what he saw during that period of time was that there was a dramatic uh, uh, movement to uh, get rid of life unworthy of living. That was the phrase used back then, but it applied in its early stages to the mentally defective and the physically unfit. Uh, the Jews were added to that 
later on. And it was all done in the name of kind of purifying and cleansing the body politic. And so that, that movement gave way to kind of laws for compulsory sterilization, euthanasia, the eugenics movement. Now, I'm not suggesting we had any of those medical practices uh, occurring during the last three years of COVID. But what we did have was uh, there were many hospitals that refused to treat the unvax. There were many that denied organ transplants to the unvax. There were colleges that imposed mandates on students that already had natural immunity. In many cases, those students forced to take vaccine we're playing a form of medical Russian roulette. Will you get myocarditis with this shot? Will you have shorter long-term fertility complications? No one really knows, but it was a form of enforced medical Russian roulette. And then finally, the final uh, comparison that I think holds up is the one of emergency, emergency rule. The Nazis, early in 1933, less than a month after taking power, orchestrated the false flag attack of the Reichstag fire that was blamed on the Nazis in very short order, almost within 24 hours. Uh, an emergency uh, bill was passed for the safety and protection of the Reich. That bill basically waived all constitutional rights and turned a democracy into a dictatorship in short order. So what did we have in March of 2020? Within one month, uh, to my shock and amazement, virtually all of the state governors, the world leaders, except for a handful, in unison, locked down their countries, suspended constitutional rights of free press and assembly, all in the pretext of preserving the health of the public. Uh, we emulated that in short order, just like they did in 1930s. So in conclusion, rather than uh, in my view, being anti-Semitic, this comparison of the ominous parallels to the Nazi era is justified. If you ignore the history and the words of Naomi, Naomi Wolf, you insult the victims. So I, I think these uh, analogies hold up. And finally, in conclusion, I hope that this talk leaves you with the following. Next time you hear anyone say the words temporary emergency, uh, safe and effective, any, anything like that, that you run for cover, you go read your Austrian economics with a tinge of libertarian theory and revisionist history and that you stand up against uh, such inhumane practices. Thank you.